0: Feels like it's been a, been a while since we've been in our normal routine again, so I'm excited to be here with you all. There's, there's a word that I'm hearing a lot that I might even nominate as the word to describe the year of 2022, which is the word polarization. So in, in the circles, that at least that I travel in, People talk a lot about polarization, meaning people on opposite sides who can't really engage or talk to one another well. This is true much more so today in politics than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's true in media coverage. It's true in just even people who can can disagree with various topics in a work setting. It is a very polarized world that we live in today. There's a civil rights advocate named John Perkins who says, this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. Another writer, her name is Jen Michael, she says, outrage has become our national sport, anger the highest of our civic virtues. After one of the presidential debates in 2020, which was especially nasty and vitriolic, there was a, a commentator who, I actually saw this, this video <laughs> clip from a couple years ago, where he was, he was describing the debate afterward and how just nasty and, and mean it was. And he said, that was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. He was, like, he was like out of metaphors to use, and so he just piled them all up there, and I thought that was appropriate. It's, it's kind of scary living in the world that we are today where there's such polarization and it's hard for people to even listen and really even understand or articulate the views of people on the other side. Uh, I, I really believe that if you can't articulate the views of the person on the other side, you haven't even started. On top of that, we have Russia invading Ukraine. We have China firing missiles around Taiwan. It's, it's very unsettling. The reason I, I describe all of this is that I believe that scripture gives us a very powerful tool, a very powerful principle to handle this kind of polarization in a world that is so toxic and difficult. So I'm going to be continuing in our series through Matthew, and I just want to set the stage and set the context, just because it's been a little bit since we've all been here in this room, at least. So at the end of chapter 11, Jesus makes a very famous statement that I think all of you know, where he says, come to me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So he's talking about how to gain rest. And the next two stories, so those, those who are here will, will know since, since I preached through these, the next two stories right after that, not, not by accident, are about Sabbath. They're about what, is the, what does it mean to live uh, in a restful way? And I should give a citywide about this as well. In the first story, uh, the Pharisees criticize Jesus and the disciples because they're eating grain uh, plucked on the Sabbath. In the second story, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And in a sense, God vindicates that Jesus' view is right because he heals this man, right? So in the middle of an argument, can you imagine if you're able to just like do a miracle and that should, like, I man, I've never seen that happen, but that would be the ultimate way to end a debate. It's like, boom, I'm gonna do a miracle right now. And in response to this astonishing miracle, the Pharisees go out and plot how to destroy Jesus, how to kill him. And so there's this huge irony, which is that they're complaining that on the Sabbath it's wrong to heal, but then it's okay to plot to kill. Um, so it doesn't make any sense. We, we're, we're looking at all this as the reader, thinking, what is happening here? Okay, so with that background, we're going to go to the next part of Matthew, which builds on all of this. So please turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew 12. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 21, but I'm going to read verse 14 just to set even more context here. So our formal passage is Matthew 12, 15 to 21, but let's also look at verse 14. Reading here from the New King James. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have given us your servant, the one that you, uh, you have chosen and in whom you delight. I thank you that in this passage you have shown us what Jesus means by being gentle, by, by being lowly. I pray that we would learn from your word. I pray that we would be able to be agents of peace in this ever more polarized world. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Okay, so I have four points for us here from this passage, and I'm just going to walk through each of them in turn. So my first point is that in response to personal opposition, Jesus avoids futile antagonism. Say that again. In response to personal opposition, Jesus avoids futile antagonism. Okay, so up to this point, Jesus has had a lot of dialogue with the Pharisees and the scribes. I won't recap this, but we've seen this in chapter 9, earlier in this section that we've been in. They've been in dialogue about the Sabbath. But at this point, it has become clear that the Pharisees are not really asking questions because they want to learn. They're asking questions because they want to trap. And they're trying to play gotcha. They're not looking to learn, but to accuse. And all of us have been in conversations where at some point a threshold is crossed where it's not a mutually respectful dialogue where people want to learn. It becomes more about, like accusation or a gotcha, or there's just the tone is all wrong. And that line has been crossed in the previous story that we read last time when I preached through this. And it's pretty obvious from verse 14 that it's gotten so bad that they're saying, we don't care what miracles you do, we don't care what this is about, we're going to try to kill you. We're going to try to plot to conspire you. And when this line is crossed, when Jesus perceives it from verse 15 here, he withdraws. He, doesn't, he says, all right, no point here. He doesn't choose a showdown or an altercation or an argument or anything like that because he recognizes the futility of doing this. Th- there's something to be said about recognizing futility when you see it. And like it sounds really obvious, right, when I say these things, but it is amazing. It is amazing how much of our lives, our energy, our time can be expended in activities that are just futile. It's not going to go anywhere, there's no point. And rather than Jesus trying to persuade them or give them yet another argument, which I'm sure he could have, he says, you know what? Time to, time to withdraw and move on here jesus could have beat himself up i'm sure it was a very emotionally painful experience to have the religious establishment turn against him right i mean think about that the people that you would have respected growing up the people that ostensibly were the ones carrying forth the religion of abraham isaac and jacob that would be very humiliating but jesus doesn't beat himself up he leaves judgment to god I love the verse, we won't turn to this, but it's in 1 Peter 2.23, where it says about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And I see in this withdrawing that he's basically saying, your judgment is in God's hands at this point. Like, I, I, I can't go further with you. There is a line that has been crossed that there's just no point in going further. Okay, so that's my first point. In response to personal opposition, Jesus avoids futile antagonism. My second point is that in response to pain, Jesus heals. In response to pain, Jesus heals. Now, I, I, I have just totally fallen in love with this middle section of Matthew. And if you remember from, this was now several months ago, there was this scene where Jesus is rejected by his hometown. Remember, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And, and ugh, I mean, can you imagine your own people, the people that, that were with you, that saw your miracles? They reject him. They don't believe in him. They don't repent. And what he does, anybody remember what he does? Well, after, the, after, the, after he pronounces the woes, the very next thing he does, yeah, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And that's a line that I have been using in my own life, uh, I have to say with great uh, fruitfulness, that when you feel stressed out, when you feel rejected, when you feel burnt out, I love Jesus' response. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He finds a way to praise God in the midst of difficulty here. Now here, again, he has rejection. He's experiencing rejection from the religious leaders. And... Look what he does in, in verse 15. Or look what happens in verse 15. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Okay? Fascinating. So, it's almost like in this scene that people are watching this. They watch Jesus heal this man with the shriveled hand. They figure out, it's pretty obvious that the... The, the religious leaders are opposing Jesus. They're asking him all this, these hostile questions. And when Jesus withdraws, they think, do I go over here or do I stay here? Which do I choose? And, and it says, and great multitudes followed him. They, they went after him, and guess what happens? More healing. Okay? So what we see here is clearly people being attracted to Jesus' healing, his gentleness, his willingness to, to see people over legalistic ideas. And I think what we're seeing here is exactly what we, what we discussed in Matthew 12, where Jesus says, "'Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.'" Okay, so all these people are now going with Jesus and following him instead of staying with the religious leaders who control the synagogue. So note the contrast here. The religious leaders are opposing Jesus. The crowds are attracted to Jesus. The Pharisees have animosity but Jesus has healing. Okay, so what we see here, and again, like it's hard for us because we read these stories and we, we depersonalize them, but picture yourself in Jesus' shoes. Picture yourself growing up in these synagogues, looking up to these leaders, feeling hurt, feeling wounded by them. And I know if it were me, my temptation would be to lick my wounds and to complain and say like what's wrong with all all these people and come on don't don't they see what's going on here and instead what Jesus does is he directs his attention to the needs of others and one of the most powerful ways to avoid sinking into despair sinking into one's own woes is to contemplate the heartaches and the needs that are out there. One of the things that we do in our family uh, from time to time is we, when we have children who are having a pity party for themselves, they think their world is crumbling. I have a set of videos that I like to show them of just like, hey, let me show you now the life of a child. There's a few children that I like to show. Uh, let me show you the life of some children that I want you to, about the same age, that I want you to see just to get perspective on your life. You're crying about a toy, and here's a, here's a child your age who has not eaten for a week. Uh, here's a child who has had a bomb blow up in their home, and they've lost their parents. Like, Let's think about perspective here. There's something about people who are, who are wired to think about others' needs that paradoxically end up being much happier people themselves because they don't, again, sink into this this sorrow that it's naturally easy for us to fall into. There's a quote that I I love. Uh, It's from John Watson who says, Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Think about that. Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Okay? It's true, you know, like if you actually like sit down and have conversations with people and peel back the superficial, how are you fine type, you can in you can, about 10 minutes, 20 minutes figure out that there's like some pretty deep struggles and battles that people are fighting. And I don't think I've yet to meet a person who there's not something like that going on deep in their heart. And when you, when you start to see the world with that sort of perspective, when you start to see people as a bunch of people walking around all fighting hard battles, it becomes much easier to be gentle, compassionate, merciful. For for, for several, several years, a long time ago now, uh, I, many of the patients that I used to see had leukemia, lymphoma, a lot of blood disorders. Uh, many of them would die in not very long. And you're, of course, so like kind to these people. You're so gentle with them, you're so tender with them because you realize, like, wow, you are fighting a terrible, terrible battle with a disease, maybe you're on chemotherapy, it's awful. How would it be if we simply regarded people as spiritually in that manner, fighting terrible conditions and illnesses and on, on all kinds of, of, of um, regimens that are very difficult to, to handle? I mentioned to you that that this world that we're living in now, I, I think this world polarized is a, is a great descriptor for the, wor- the world that we're living in. And at the same time, there's been a very interesting phenomenon, which I'm sure some of you have noticed, which is a character has come back into vogue, who I actually watched when I was a young boy in in, uh, in, the, in the early 80s. Uh, his name is Mr. Rogers. Do, just, do people know who Mr. Rogers is? Okay, looks like about half the people, all right. so. So Mr. Rogers was a person who was on TV when I was young, and I remember watching Mr. Rogers. He would he had this, this very kind, gentle disposition to him, and he would walk in this house. He would put on this cardigan. He would sing a song. He would uh, he had these like puppet characters that he would do different things with, and it was just this. It it, was, it had to be probably the most soothing television experience out there because you just felt like this person really cared for you and really loved you and I don't know how he did it he was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister and uh, again I remember watching this a lot when I was young and this feeling of like you're entering when when he would open the door and go in and you know again you, you just felt like you were almost there in his room and this very kind gentle person was was just giving you a hug, and he would often say things like, you're special, I love you. You know, of course, you don't even know the person, but you felt like he, 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 he meant it, right? I, I believe he did mean it. And what's been fascinating to me is that in the last two or three years, he died in 2003, so almost 20 years ago. There's been documentaries that have just been produced. They made a movie about him. And you think, why is Mr. Rogers coming into vogue now? Well, I think it's because people are so tired of all the polarization out there and they're longing for somebody like a Mr. Rogers to scoop them up into his arms and say hey you're special I believe in you. You're, you're a very um, you're very dear to me and people are attracted to this sort of gentleness. So here we are in this scene here where people see the, the legalistic antagonism of the Pharisees and they see this consistent burden of mercy and kindness and gentleness that Jesus is showing and guess what that is very attractive and the people go to follow Jesus okay my third point is that in response to rejection Jesus finds acceptance with the father in response to rejection Jesus finds acceptance with the father okay so we're going to read this quote from Isaiah in just a little bit that Matthew cites here. But, again, I'm putting myself in Jesus' shoes here. I want you to do the same and think, okay, you've just been rejected by the people that, were, that are the religious leaders, and now you've healed a bunch of people who are, you know, it says to heal all kinds of people who had all kinds of illnesses. Okay, what an opportunity to, again, say, see, everybody, God is on my side. Like, I've been rejected here by all these people, but look, I have healed all these people. I am vindicated. Don't, don't pay any attention to those folks. It could have been amazing, right? Jesus could have marshaled an army at this point if he wanted to, right? He's healing all these people. He could have said, yeah, come follow me. Like, I, I, I'm your new Messiah. I'm, I'm going to be the one to follow. Jesus could have built an army. He could have built a pretty impressive donor base if he wanted to at this point, right? Right? Think about the ability to heal all these people who had all these lifelong illnesses. But what does this messiah do? He does exactly the, like the wrong thing to do according to human logic, which is he tells people, I want you to be totally quiet. Don't tell people about these healings that I've just done for you. And you just think like, what kind of messiah are you? You've just been rejected uh, for all the wrong reasons, and... Now you've healed people, and this is your opportunity to show the world that you're legit. This is it, Jesus. Come on. Come on, right? Show us your stuff. But instead, he tells them to be quiet. It's actually, it's a very strong language in Greek, the, the strength of the admonition that he gives there. He, is, he seemingly has no interest in personal vindication. And what Matthew decides to do in response to this crazy, unmessianic behavior that makes no sense is he says... This is actually, in fact, keeping with, if you know your Bibles here, one of the servant songs from Isaiah. So we won't turn to this passage, but in Isaiah, there are these passages in the second half of the book, incredibly important passages called servant songs that are descriptions of Jesus's ministry. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 3. And I think this quote is an amazing summary of Jesus' ministry so far since we've seen him in chapter 4. Okay, so look at verse 15. Verse 15 of Matthew 12 says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Okay, so I hope a bell went off when you, when you heard verse 15 because verse 15 sounds a lot like a verse we saw earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 4. So at Jesus' baptism, there was a voice that came from heaven where the, the Father says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here we see in this quotation from Isaiah almost the same language. And in fact, uh, it's very clever, the word that Matthew chooses. He, he, he seems like it's not a direct quote from the Septuagint. It doesn't, he seems like he's maybe translating a fresh uh, version himself. It's a little unclear there. But uh, the word for servant that he chooses there, depending on your pronunciation, is pes or pice. And those of you who know Greek will know that that word is ambiguous between son or servant. It can be either one. And so even there, it's a brilliant use of, of Greek and how Matthew structures this and i am totally convinced the more i've been studying matthew that one of the most important lines in the whole book is you are my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased we hear that it is baptism we see it here and we're going to see it again at the mount of transfiguration it's this repeated line that runs through here um, i'm not going to repeat my citywide that i gave you now several weeks ago but i talked about before in my citywide how the basis of rest, when I say rest, I mean biblical Hebrews 4 type rest, is acceptance. It's this inner rest that we're looking for. Time management strategies are fine, but they don't really get at the heart of what biblical rest is about. What Jesus means when he says, I will give you rest. So why doesn't Jesus have this burden to like go out and like raise this army, to make the donor base, to like show the world about like how great he is? Why? Because he knows that the father has declared that he is well-pleased, right? He's all set. He doesn't need an ounce of approval or vindication from anybody because he knows, I love this line, my beloved in whom my soul is well-pleased. So what a contrast again. The Pharisees are scheming against him, but the father is delighted in him. And in Jesus' mind, the Father's approval, the Father's delight, far outweighs all the displeasure of the religious establishment. I love that. My, My fourth and final point is, in response to biblical misinterpretation, Jesus sets his mind on victory among the nations. I'll repeat that point. In response to biblical misinterpretation, Jesus sets his mind on victory among the nations. Okay, so what do I mean by this point? So the Pharisees were wrong about the Sabbath. They, they don't understand what true Sabbath rest is about. They don't understand who Jesus is, what he's bringing. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand that the Lord of the Sabbath is among them. They have missed fundamental hermeneutical principles to, under, to, to interpret Torah here. This, this quotation from Isaiah is, is really interesting because it, at some level, you know, you, you hear things like, okay, in verse 19, it says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Okay, so that's obviously talking about Jesus here is, is keeping a low profile in response to all of this antagonism, right? He's not out there trying to like, yeah, you're wrong. He's not, he's not doing any of that. What is... What a lot of people though wrongly take from this is they wrongly think that being gentle or being meek is merely being like timid or shy or maybe even like a pushover. There's a, I, I sometimes think about this, this story uh, from a, a newspaper column about an individual named J. Upton Dixon And this person was was an interesting fellow who who founded a group for meek people, meek, M-E-E-K, or gentle people, and he named the organization Doormats. And Doormats stands for Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls, okay? Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls. And their motto was, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. right it's great and their symbol was the yellow traffic light so a a lot of people when they when they think about meekness and gentleness they think like oh yeah just be cool be lay low be gentle be kind just be be a sweetie to everybody that's what that's what being meek is about now okay so let's go back again to where Jesus is at because again I think there's so much here for us Jesus has been teaching accurately. He's been, he's been showing what the fulfillment of Torah is like, really from Matthew 5 on. And he, you know, he could have went on some long treatise to explain everything. He doesn't do that. Uh, what it says in verse 20, I think, is very fascinating. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. Okay, so we we usually hear the first two lines, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Okay, let me first explain those. Uh, those, They're beautiful pictures. So a reed is, I think we know what a reed is, it's a plant that has a long straight stem, and a reed could be used for measuring or for supporting something. You could stack reeds together and build structures out of that. And if you have a bruised reed or a broken reed, it's, it's like kind of worthless, right? Like what are you going to do with a bruised reed? It's, it's, it's lost its utility. And what, what he's saying here is, what this, what this quote is saying is that the Messiah is so tender that even in a society that is very go-getter, results-driven, type A, He's going to be tender even with the reeds that seem like there's no hope for them. And smoking flax, he will not quench. Okay, so smoking flax, for example, here we're supposed to picture something like a wick in a candle that it can't actually light and it just like throws off smoke. And like we all know how annoying it is to have smoke in your room, right? Like it it doesn't feel good. And so what are you going to do with, with a wick that just throws off smoke? You're going to throw that thing away. It has no value whatsoever. And what it's saying here in those in this first lines is that Jesus is so gentle, he's so tender with even people who are broken, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, you name it, that he's, he's, he wants to, to, to be in fellowship with them, to, to dine with them. But, but the, la- the third line of verse 20 is the line that, again, doesn't get quoted as much, which I think should be joined to the previous two lines, where it says, till he sends forth Justice to victory. Um, Justice is actually not a great translation here. It's crisis. It should be judgment. Um, That would be a better translation. I think the King James does that, actually. Um, So whatever, not a super big deal. But here we have a person who, on the one hand, is very gentle, but also cares about victory. (laughs) And he's also sending forth judgment or justice to victory. And I was... It's, it's beautiful in Greek, ekvale is nikos ten krisim. Ekvale would be like, you know, that's the same word that Jesus uses when he throws out demons, right? Ekvalo, right? It's a strong word. And you picture this person who on the one hand is so gentle, but on the other hand is like hurling justice and judgment to victory. Love this picture. So, so on the one hand, we see this pulling away from the religious establishment. But, but not, not in a way that that's in any way the end goal. The end goal is the good news to the Gentiles or to the nations even better, right? So again, another point. Whenever you see the word Gentiles in the New Testament, it is the identical word with nations. There's no difference. Um, so I generally prefer nations instead of Gentiles, but either, either one can be appropriate. So, so what, are we, what are we seeing here? we're seeing that in verse 18 okay so let's go back and look at verse 18 here it says my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased that was the line said at jesus baptism i will put my spirit upon him okay wait a minute that also sounds like something that happened at jesus baptism right pretty pretty interesting that this this little quote here reflects back what happens back in matthew 4 where there's this proclamation of the beloved son And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove lights upon Jesus at the baptism. And here that is prophetically described. But there is a goal, there's a purpose for this. The purpose is to declare judgment to the Gentiles. And judgment, we we usually think of that in just a negative sense, but it can be a positive sense as well. Uh, You can have a favorable judgment rendered. And and again, in verse 20, till he sends forth judgment to victory and in his name, the nations will trust. Okay, so here we have in embryonic form here again the Great Commission. We're getting ready. Uh, this, it's again and again through Matthew this theme of the gospel g- that's going to go out to all the nations. Uh, I, I love the, um, this quote here. This is from an author named Bruner who says the servant is quiet but not quietistic. nonviolent but not non-involved not involved, gentle but passionate for justice, a justice we are promised that he shall one day successfully bring to victory. I'll read that one more time. The servant is quiet but not quietistic, nonviolent but not non-involved, gentle but passionate for justice, a justice we are promised that he shall one day successfully bring to victory. Okay, so... I think this is fascinating, this juxtaposition in verse 20. He's, he's gentle with this bruised reed. He's, he's, he's careful with the, 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 the flax that is smoking. But at the same time, proclaiming judgment and hurling judgment to victory. There's an insight that I learned from a person named Scott Sauls, who has, a, I think, a very good insight, which is that biblical gentleness is rooted in judgment. That's not how he phrases it, but that's how I'm phrasing it. Um, he actually, the way he phrases it is maybe even a little stronger. He says that gentleness is rooted in anger. Kind of an amazing line there. Um, the, the reason that he, he adopts this is there's, there's verses that, that say things like, be angry and do not sin, where there is such a thing as a righteous anger as opposed to a toxic anger again, I don't adopt his nomenclature, but I do think there's something in all this which is is worth us unpacking for a moment here. I know it sounds strange, but the claim that I'm going to make is that biblical gentleness, biblical meekness is not the doormat-type weakness that we, we hear about or that is wrongfully portrayed. It actually has kind of a fiery core to it, which is... Is based on judgment and justice and love. There is a judgment that drives biblical gentleness. C.S. Lewis, I think this is in Mere Christianity, has a line that is very memorable, and he talks about how Christianity is a fighting religion. So Christianity is a fighting religion. And the, the contrast that he makes is that there are certain religions that are out there that are very much like Kumbaya be who you are, don't need to change, we love you as you are, no, there's nothing out there to feel, Like It's, just, it's constant uh, messages of, of this sort of very watery, um, supposed gentleness and supposed acceptance. But what always rubs people the wrong way about Christianity is that there is this edge, there is something to it, that has an element of judgment to it, right? I think the the more we run away from that, the more we end up leaving the scriptures entirely. What happens, though, for most people, is they disassociate the two. You have kind of a a judgment crew over here that's really big into, like, truth and being really strong on truth, and then you have a gentleness group over here that they're a little soft. they They wince a little bit when they hear talk about judgment and things like this, they think, ah, that's a little too harsh, a little too, little too difficult for us to stomach. But I think that there is something about what Jesus brings here, and that Bruner quote brings it together really nicely, where on the one hand, he's so tender, he's so gentle, he's this person that, that is remarkably attractive to the tax collectors and the sinners, but at the same time is hurling judgment to victory, right? And you think like, How do you bring these two together? Well, here Jesus is doing that. I I wanna go back to that Mr. Rogers example because I think he actually embodies this in in many ways too. As a family, we actually watched a video about him a couple years ago that there were a couple parts of that video that made a big impact on me. So as it turns out for 30 years, this blew me away, for 30 years, what he did was he would, he was very disciplined. He would wake up at 5.30 in the morning and he would go swimming and what he would do is he would weigh himself every day after he'd go swimming and for 30 years believe it or not he stayed at the weight of 143 pounds okay he he retained that weight and let me um let me see what that would be in kilograms here so 143 pounds would be 64.9 kilograms okay so he stays at this weight for 30 years 143 pounds and uh, and he sort of made this a little bit of a, as Mr. Rogers did, very clever individual. He 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 said, "There's something symbolic about that number. You know what it was?" I love you. Yeah. So I has one letter in it. Love has four letters in it. You has three letters in it. And he'd always say, "See, my weight, 143 pounds, says I love you, right?" And again, in a very Mr. Rogers sort of gentle way. I'm like, wow, how'd you even think to come up with that? Uh, but but, but he, he stays at this. And, and one of the things that might surprise you about Mr. Rogers was that he was bullied very intensely as a child for being overweight. Okay, so you, when you look at him, the older one, he's so skinny, you think like, you overweight? But he was. And in fact, his nickname was Fat Freddy when, when he was young. So his name was Fred Rogers, but he was intensely bullied by a group of boys when he was young. He had asthma as well, so he couldn't run around and do sports like everybody else. And he carried the weight of this being bullied for his whole life, and he, he despised what bullying did to children. And so, uh, so the, the core of what made Mr. Rogers who he was was this childhood mistreatment over, over being bullied over his weight, which then produced in him this gentleness of, I love you, I accept you, I'm going to be so gentle with you, I'm going to be so tender with you, because I hate what happens when people are not kind and, and when, when people are, are, are harsh over issues like weight. This, this juxtaposition of, of gentleness and judgment is not unique to this passage you can find this all throughout scripture there's a verse that i I sometimes say eventide should make it our theme the company i work for i sometimes say we should make it our theme verse where it's abhor what is evil cling to what is good that's in romans 12. abhor means to hate right hate what is evil cling to what is good so you're like wait a minute what's going on here on the one hand hating what is evil but on the other hand clinging to what is good And it is that union of judgment, of hating what is wrong with the world, but also clinging to what is good, the gentleness side that we see in this passage that is just so Jesus. It's so Messiah-like. And I'm sure for all of us in the room here, as we think about these two sides here, the judgment side and the gentleness side, a lot of us will hopefully recognize like, wow, I'm way too much over on this side, or I'm way too much over on this side. And our goal in coming to this passage is to see our Messiah as the one who brings them both together and to pray to the Father that we would have those brought together in us as they are in him in such beautiful proportions and in such beautiful manifestation of God's goodness. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is and for this amazing manifestation of his his gentleness, his kindness to the bruised reed, uh, and yet his determination, his fierce determination to see judgment, to see the good news go out to the nations. Father, I know uh, many of us here need significant correction in in one direction or the other, but I pray that we would do that and that we would similarly be found in Christ and to hear the words that you spoke to him, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that we would, we would believe and, and receive the acceptance that we have as sons and daughters of you, our Father. We bless you, Father, for who Jesus is and for these, this amazing uh, juxtaposition here that I just I long to go deeper into. And so we ask, Father, that you would give us more of Jesus, you'd give us more of him as we seek to, to honor you and to extend the good news to all the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.